0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Morning, everyone. Greetings to wherever and with whomever you're watching it this morning. My name's Tyler I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope, and we're just going to bow our heads in prayer once more before we get rolling in the text today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that that your word, the word that we submit ourselves to, uh, hopefully on a daily basis, but certainly as a collective church every Lord's Day, every Sunday, um, that you have not abandoned us, you have not removed your steadfast love from us, and in times where we feel alone, your word reminds us that we are not. In times where we feel vulnerable, your word reminds us that we are not vulnerable when we are inside of your love. Vulnerable to all sorts of things, but not vulnerable from being left outside of the embrace of God if we're covered by the love and grace of Jesus. So Lord, we pray today as we conclude our Easter series that Christ becomes visibly uh, brighter, visibly distinct, and comforting to our hearts. That we see him as the center of all of Scripture, so we might see your gospel at the center of all of our life. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together today in the presence of God to unite this man and this woman in marriage, which is instituted by God, regulated by his commandment, established perfectly by Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. It is into this relationship that these two parties wish to enter. Or to put it another way, marriage is what brings us together today. And I'm sure you've heard this, whether at a wedding or watching a movie like The Princess Bride, we get, we understand, and we see marriages all over the place. What's interesting is even though in the Western world, the value and the, the purity of marriage as an institution is declining, the wedding ceremony is not losing its value or its visibility. There's a lot of fanfare spent. It dominates our Instagram feeds. It consumes our budgets. And even just thinking economically, this is really the first time, I'm certain, maybe someone can write a thesis on this, uh, that this is the first time in history where there is a sect of business, there is an economy that exists specifically to provide places for people to get married. Weddings have shifted away from the church and away from the courthouse, and now they center on not only the most beautiful places in our community, but the most beautiful places in our world. Why is that? Why is it that the wedding ceremony is still so highly treasured in a world where marriage is on the decline? It's because we understand that marriages create a kind of ecosystem That we want the wedding ceremony to create, to foster, and to even invite others into. In a marriage, we understand there to be all these things that we want to be experienced, not just spoken of, at a wedding ceremony. We want it to be centered on beauty, on family, on food, on drinking, and dancing. We want it to be a place in this ceremony where needs are met, where you are catered to, where love is cherished, the future is optimistic, And celebration is offered openly for you to come and participate in as well. And the hope is is that as we create this ecosystem in the wedding ceremony, the beauty, the exclusivity, the wonder of it will carry on in the life of this couple who are being wed together that day. They hope the ceremony will shape the marriage. And yet we also know the darker side of these ceremonies. There's often jealousy, broken marriages, There's the pain of singleness or the loss of a spouse. Maybe you've seen like I have in the past few weeks pictures of weddings during our COVID-19 era, which feature a bride, a groom, and an officiant in an empty church, an empty park, an empty field. It doesn't take long, either circumstantially or relationally, to realize how vulnerable this cherished gift is And how it can so quickly expose the weaknesses and the wants of our own hearts. And my hope here today is that we would find marriage to be everything we've ever wanted it to be. And yet something that will never satisfy you. And there's a tension in that statement. And the only way we can understand or resolve that tension is actually by finding the role that Jesus plays in the story of Scripture as it relates to our understanding of marriage. The, through this Easter season, this is what we've been doing. We've been taking the Bible, this big book that we've perhaps known of, but maybe don't understand the central theme of it, and we've been tracing it from the beginning, from Genesis to the end, to Revelation. And we've been seeing how uh, it makes sense only when we see the person and work of Jesus at the center of all of it. And in seeing Jesus as the key to understanding Scripture, what we also see is Jesus as the key to understanding the story of our own lives. And my goal here today is that none of you would leave here or click off from here without being married. And I know this sounds really cliche. It sounds like Jesus is my girlfriend theology, but there's a biblical principle behind this that all of the things you want in marriage, all of the things that are desirable about a wedding ceremony or the marriage to follow can actually be granted to you, wed to you in the gospel to Jesus Christ. The whole ecosystem that you want. The ecosystem that maybe you've seen in wonderful glimpses, but also in blaring absences in your own marriage. All of those things are meant, created, designed to point us to Jesus and how the gospel can marry us to him in a unique and unprecedented way. And today, we're going to look at the story of scripture and the story of our hearts. And what we're going to see is this, is that Jesus is the faithful groom who redeems his wife For her joy. Jesus is the faithful husband who redeems his wife for her own joy. And in looking at Jesus as this ultimate faithful husband, we're gonna break up the story of Scripture, kinda as we've done the previous three weeks, into four sections. And each of those sections of the narrative kinda reveal to us a glimpse of marriage. So first we're gonna look at marriage and our world, and then we're going to look at marriage and our longings. Then we're going to examine marriage and the one. And lastly, we'll apply this to us by looking at marriage and the church. Now, I don't want to be as presumptuous to assume that all of us have the exact same emotions towards marriage, but biblically speaking, to understand marriage is to understand something of far greater significance than simply romance or a soulmate or whatever it is you want to call it. For example, did you know that the Bible begins with a wedding ceremony and ends with a wedding ceremony. God created it, he ordered his story around it, he speaks through it, and we should try to understand it. It's actually in understanding the nature of the first wedding ceremony in human history that we learn about the world itself. We learn about ourselves and everything we go through. And this is the first point today. This is marriage in our world. Marriage helps us understand everything we encounter when we understand marriage through the lens of Scripture. Read with me from the opening pages of Scripture, Genesis 2. We're to start by looking at verses 5 through 9, but we'll also look at verse 15 as well. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole ground. So that's kind of an aside, and then we continue. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted in Eden a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the relationship between the man and the garden? Verse 15 tells us, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so here in kind of this rearticulation of the creation events of Genesis 1, we see two important things. First, we see the physical reality of the garden of Eden. Moses is explaining, beginning in verse 5, what life is like outside of the garden. It was a desert. There was no plant. There was nothing um, from which to take shade or to have food. And you know this if you've seen pictures of the Middle East. That's roughly what life is like over there. And yet in the middle of this desert, God created a garden. He himself brought it forth. It did not fall from the seeds of trees that existed. This is a garden made supernaturally by God himself. And he made a garden to be a garden. He caused bushes and trees to grow. And from those trees and from those plants, he made food, every food that was good for food. And every plant that was pleasing to the eye. God's goodness is all over this garden. But then we see secondly, not just the physical nature of it, but the purpose and relationship inside of it. Concurrent with this garden, God created man for a purpose. We see in Genesis 1, we've seen in previous weeks, God created man in his own image. And part of an image bearer is to carry out the task of the God who we bear the image of. God gave Adam a job. Our work as humans was given to us by God. It's part of God's ideal design. And what was that for Adam? It was to keep the garden and to expand it. You see, as Adam labored in the garden... And as he pushed the garden further and further into the desert that was outside of it, he was expanding the actual experience of God. The bigger the garden got, the bigger the reign of God got. The bigger the garden was, the more people could be in the presence of this God. They could have a perfect relationship with God, which is what Adam and Eve had, a perfect relationship with each other, which we'll see in a moment, and a perfect relationship with nature. It is everything our world longs for, and Adam was charged to make it bigger, to make much of it, to invite others into it. To put it simply, Adam's role was to work for the glory of God, to make much of it, and to invite others into it. It was his greatest joy. It was his singular purpose, and it's only in light of seeing that that the first wedding ceremony begins to make sense for us. We read this ceremony beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man Then man said, this at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Fun fact, this is the very first song in all of scripture. And what we see here is that Adam's not very good at songs, but at least he's putting an effort at this point. Like it's not the song of romance here. It's not Simon and Garfunkel yet, but he's really trying just to describe your woman taken from me are you. But there's this like celebration Adam has here and we see the reason for this as it continues Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we have this completing, this satisfying, this song-producing creation of Eve and the marriage that God himself arranged. God created Eve and brought her to Adam, and the two became one flesh. And we see the perfection of the garden continuing to grow even in this. There was intimacy with Adam and Eve that was reflected in the unashamed nature of their relationship. But inside of that, there was also a purpose for their marriage. A purpose which made sense of their love, which endured their love, which gave them the sphere in which their love would be lived out. What was that purpose? We saw it a number of times in Genesis. Eve was to be a helper fit for Adam. Now we need to answer this question, what does this helper look like? Because for many people, specifically, I'm guessing females who are watching this, we might be having red flags go up in our mind like, what is this that I am a helper to? Is this just menial subordination? This is where understanding the task that Adam has helps us understand our own tasks. Because here we see that Eve was not a partner to Adam's whimsy. She was a partner in the expansion of God's glory as a helper for Adam. It was no trivial task. It was participation in the most cosmic, meaningful goal God had given to his creation up until this point. God commissioned Adam and Eve as male and female, husband and wife, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, the first marriage existed to bring satisfaction to Adam and Eve, but also and more broadly to display the glory of God through keeping the garden, and to fill the garden through procreation, childbearing, making a family. was to expand it in size and to expand it in depth. It was to be bigger and there would be more people inside of it. Now, this doesn't mean that if you want to glorify God, you've got to be married and have kids. It was necessary in a unique way for Adam and Eve as the first male and the first female to be called to marriage and to be called to procreation. Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, neither were married, neither had physical children. It's no crime against the glory of God to remain single. But it is a crime against the glory of God, whether in marriage or whether in singleness, to fail to work for God's glory because that is what you were made for. The NFL draft is this week and at this point there are teams who are picking their players and uh, you often heard this kind of uh, anecdote said of a specific player who meets the height requirement, the size requirement, the speed requirement and they just say, man, this guy was made to play football. As a human, you were made to glorify God. Every component of your DNA, every atom, every cell exists to perfectly equip you to make much of God's kingdom by expanding it in scope and inviting others into it. And yet, it was this call that put a kink in the relationship in the garden because the serpent crept in and began to distract from the purpose for which God created Adam and Eve in a relationship. He disrupted the ecosystem of marriage. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had the best work, the sweetest love, the most uninhibited relationship with themselves, with nature, and with God, and all of it would be lost. How so? Satan deceived Eve, and therefore Adam, that their greatest good was not in serving and enjoying the glory of God, but their greatest good would be in being glorified like a God, higher than God, They lost sight of their own purpose. In that moment, Eve failed in temptation to help Adam. Adam failed in temptation to protect Eve. And in the midst of their temptation, it is silence between the two of them. Neither of them came to help, protect, or serve each other. And that's because to lose sight of God's call for you is to also lose sight of what love looks like. The two weren't meant to be separated from each other. To do what God called you to do is precisely to exercise the deepest and the greatest love. And because they lost sight of that, the result was that they were disconnected from the person and the purpose of marriage. The whole ecosystem, the world's most Instagrammable marriage, was lost. They were removed from the person of God. They were removed from the garden, removed from his immediate glory, removed from his satisfaction. It was complicated to get back, to have that relationship with God. A cherubim with a sword stood between them. The persons between Adam and Eve became complicated. They immediately began to fight. And soon we see that the purpose of marriage was frustrated. Adam, who was meant to work in the lush soil of Eden, God says, now that soil will produce thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. There was to be this hard labor for Adam. His call remained, but sin complicated it. And then with Eve, Eve was told that she was to have pain in childbirth and that there would be tension between her call to be a suitable helpmate for Adam and her desire to not be ruled by her husband. It was that her role in bearing children and her role in garden keeping was complicated by sin. All of the call was still there, but sin made it difficult. It all went wrong as quickly as it went right. The husband failed to protect his wife and kill the serpent. The wife failed to serve her husband and report the snake as a threat to the wonderful kingdom calling that God gave them. And the result was judgment. Removal from the person of God and the ideal purpose of Eden. And yet, when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they were still married. They didn't become unmarried. And that meant that all the longings and all the hopes which accompanied life inside of the garden remained, but marriage as a means to enjoy and to make much of the glory of God was complicated by the presence of sin. And this is where now we begin to see not only how marriage makes sense of our world and what is good and our hopes, but we see how our longings... And the difficulties we have in marriage also speak to the need we have in it. This is the second part of Scripture. Marriage and our longings. The beginning shows us what was good, and now we see where it went wrong. As the rest of Genesis continues, we see that the marriages in the Bible don't lead to the expansion of God's glory and human flourishing. Instead, it leads to people, more and more people, who sin against God and sin against others. As people begin to increase, as the earth begins to be filled through the means of male and female coming together, things get worse and worse. We see surmounting wickedness at the flood. We see wicked cooperation to once again overthrow God at Babel. The relationships that were formed between a husband and a wife did not create garden caretakers. It created human wrecking balls wreaking havoc through the narrative of scripture. But in Genesis 12, as God has done in the previous three weeks. God enters back into the story. Up until Genesis 12, offspring of marriage did terrible things. But in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that, he, that his offspring will again work for the glory of God. To make much of the glory of God, a new family line would be made and it would be made by grace. God would go and tell Abraham this is what would happen. This is Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By God's grace... He was going to rebuild the blessing of Eden. God wasn't going to create a family which would bless people. It was once again going to expand the glory of God by making more people who could come in and enjoy this covenant-keeping God. This God who came into a broken people's mess and promised to bless them. Even though this Genesis 12 promise was given, we don't see that promise living itself out in this flourishing humanity. Instead, as the Old Testament continues, we see the opposite of it. And there's something important for us to remember, and that's when biblical authors are writing about marriage. It's synonymous with belonging, with care, with identity, with all the things we still treasure today. But we need to understand it here, because while it may seem offensive in our modern world, during biblical times, universal across all cultures, it was true that a woman was most cared for and most protected in a society when they were married, which meant to lose a husband or to be unmarried was to be in a very vulnerable position. But God wanted his people to be distinct. And, and actually, when you look at scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, no one was more progressive towards caring for women than God was. And God saw this, and so he provided in his law what was often called a kinsman redeemer. And that law was that if a wife's husband died, then the next closest unmarried relative of that brother would marry that wife and care for her as his wife. She would be protected. She would be loved. She would have social standing and belonging. But in the Old Testament, we see many instances where these potential redeemers are too selfish to actually do this. They knew that to care for this widow would be to incur a cost themselves. They would have to open their home. They would have to care for them. They would have their schedules altered. Their finances changed. They were too selfish to care for them. And so we see sin come. In fact, that leads to, in Genesis 38, one of the most cringeworthy stories of the Bible with Judah and Tamar, is that of husbands and men refusing to care for those who ought to have been their wife. We see the indwelling selfishness of husbands exposed. The curse of the garden remained. But we also see the failure of faithful wives, and God makes this clear, actually, most clearly in Scripture, not by zooming in on a personal level, but by actually at a corporate level. God begins to speak to Israel, his people, this line of Abraham, and he begins to speak of them as his wife, a wife whom God says he covenanted himself to Abraham. When God went to Israel and said, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people in the eyes of God, that was a wedding ceremony. And for God's people to accept that grace, they accepted on themselves a wedding covenant themselves. They were to be their God, or God was to be their God as their husband and they were to be his people as his wife. In fact, look at how God speaks of this in Jeremiah chapter two. Uh, We'll read verses one through three. The word of the Lord came to me That's to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. All who ate it, that is of this covenant, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. God is saying that when I came to you after Eden, and I promised to bring you back into my blessing, we were married. I covenanted to you, and you to me. I was to be your God, you were to be my people, I was to be a husband, you were to be my wife. Just as it was for Adam and Eve. This meant that Israel should have been true to the person and the purpose of marriage. The person and purpose of God. And he's constantly reminding them of how, what a privilege it was to be married to a God like this. What a privilege it was to have a husband like this. He continues in Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 20, where he says this. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. It's at freedom, liberation from Egypt. He rescued them. But you said... I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. This is really important for us to understand not only the the narrative of Israel, but also our own hearts. God is saying this. I freed you. I brought you out, not because you did anything, because I was your husband. And that's what a good husband does. He protects his wife. I broke your bonds, and yet as soon as I freed you, you ran off with other men. You ran off with other gods. You would not stay true to me. And for us, God is making it abundantly clear That sin, which is anything we think, say, or do against God, is spiritual adultery. Sin is not coloring outside the lines or skipping a step. Sin is as depraved and distasteful as a covenanted spouse frequently and continually going to the arms of another lover to make matters worse God says I liberated you you were enslaved and I brought you out so that you might love me in freedom but not only are you running to false husbands and false idols but what you don't realize is they cannot free you you're running to more and more slavery I saved you for freedom, and yet you run back to slavery so that you could experience it more and more. God's love brings freedom, but love misplaced always leads slavery. That's where sin always gets you. And for some reason, we flock to it, thinking that we have finally found the husband, the idol, who will liberate us. Only to find ourselves not serving the faithful and loving God, but enslaved to deaf, dumb idols. You see, marriage stood as this system of belonging, care, purpose, and acceptance. But what kept the people from enjoying that relationship was the selfishness of husbands and the unfaithfulness of wives. There was an internal and an external problem. Scripturally, when we're talking about the people of God, we find ourselves in the role of a wife. And this is a perfect metaphor for sin. Internally, our sin shows us that we don't believe our husband God is able to satisfy us. So we run to false husbands and false idols, hoping to find the warmth of what only God himself can provide. And yet externally, we find that those idols are unable to love us like God would. They either cannot love us because they are inanimate, Or if they are animate, they cannot love us like God would love us. They cannot take care of us like God would take care of us. Not only is this a bad experience, but this is bad all over the place. It is a sin against God, a sin that deserves to be judged, a sin that should be punished. So what was God going to do to his faithless bride? Well, Jeremiah continues. And I want you to notice, I'm going to read three passages where God is predicting judgment on Israel. And I want you to notice the three metaphors he uses in each of these instances. The first is in Jeremiah 7, verse 34. God says this, I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Jeremiah 16, verse 9, says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Also in Jeremiah 25, verse 10. I hope you're hearing the pattern here. Here it is once more. Moreover, I will banish from them, that's God's people, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. So if you have, your, uh, if you have a physical Bible in front of you, keep Jeremiah twenty-five ten 10, bookmark it. We're going to come back to that a little later and notice the three things he says, three signs of judgment, the millstone, the light, and the marriage will all be removed. And that's interesting here, isn't it? In Jeremiah 2, God says, remember when you were a faithful wife. Remember our days on our honeymoon. And here he says, judgment's going to come. And what does judgment look like? Repeated three times, the silencing of the wedding feast. Why is that? Why is God using this metaphor? Well, it goes back to why we love weddings, why we turn to sin. We think that sin brings back to us the joy of the edip- of the ecosystem in Eden. You see, at weddings in we we're catered to. There is joy and celebration. There is love. There is food. There is drink. There is wine. There is fun. The whole ecosystem completes us. We show up to a wedding, and it is good in everything. There is music. There is pretty things to look at. There is good things to eat. There are good friends to spend our time with. And we think that like a good spouse, sin will take us and it will bring us back to that holistic ecosystem of the person and the purpose of what it is we're looking for. We think it brings us identity, comfort, satisfaction, and celebration. And because of that, we are willing to run from God to sin, to lust, to wealth, to, to, to whatever it is, thinking that they are able to give it to us because God cannot God is a terrible husband. It's really that truth that leads us to sin. We think God is unable to give us what we love. So God says to the faithless wife, I'm going to remove the joy of wedding from you. At this point, we already see that the wedding existed to express the relationship between God and his people. He's saying, you've neglected the source. You've ran from me. But now I'm going to take away the shadow. In your exile... Not only will you not have a right relationship with me, but you're going to see what it looks like to lose joy on every level. The point God's making here, the point that we need to hear, the bucket of cold water that needs to be thrown over us in the secrecy of isolation is that sin removes the promise of joy. It silences it. We think it brings it. We think it provides it. But mirth and joy and celebration never come at the hand of sin. God wants us to know that. God wanted his people to know that. But our husband is a good husband. God speaks later on in Jeremiah of what it looks like to have a God like this. And we see his grace. In Jeremiah thirty-three, ten 10 through 11. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord, In this place, of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate, so judgment has come. Without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. And the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. For I, that is the Lord, will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Where judgments silence the wedding feast, restoration reopens the chapel everything they look for in sin, God was going to bring about by his hand, in his grace, at his wedding. This is expressed even more clearly in Isaiah chapter 62, where we read this. This is what Devin read at the beginning. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. and For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be, uh, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, for that is what their idolatry led to, and your land shall be called no more desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you, for the sake of his bride Israel, for the sake of his people, God is going to act. And what is that going to look like? The bride is going to be cleaned. Her righteousness is going to go forth to the nations. The beauty and the blessing of Eden is being restored in the promise of God's marriage. God was going to cause marriage to be a witness to nations because they were going to be made righteous. God was going to solve the internal problem. He was going to make a faithless bride faithful. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about righteousness in Isaiah 62. To be righteous is to be faithful to the God who pledged himself to you in grace. Righteousness is not an abstract principle. Righteousness is faithfulness to God in faith. In Ezekiel 16, he speaks in probably what is the most explicit and tummy-churning texts about the adultery and the scandal of sin as a sexual deviance towards God. It is repeatedly going to another man instead of your husband. And at the end of this passage, look at what God says in Ezekiel 16, verse 62 and 63. I will establish my covenant with you twice now, People are faithless. We don't keep our covenant, but God does. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When will this happen? When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Israel's gonna be a faithful wife or a faithless wife who's redeemed by what? Righteousness and atonement. Through righteousness and atonement, the marriage is going to be restored. The celebration is going to be brought back. The ecosystem of Eden is going to be there for all of us to enjoy. The internal problem is fixed. Our hearts are going to be rendered faithful to God. Our sins are going to be covered. But what about the external problem? Who is this husband and where will we see him? Because obviously God being distant and hidden behind the veil of heaven... It's difficult for sinful people to follow. As the Old Testament unfolds, we don't see this husband. But it's not missed on us that in John 2, we read the first miracle of Jesus at a wedding. Where Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding and the celebration comes to a screeching stop when the wine is gone. But Jesus turns water to wine and restores a celebration to a dry festival. And this is where now we turn to this next saga in Scripture. Marriage and the one. In working with college students for most of my life, I've noticed a unique obsession with the one. The one is who we're worried about missing out on in dating and marriage. Our hearts long to find the one, which means when we think we've found the one, there is really nothing that could happen to make us comfortable with the idea of losing the one. We'll give anything to keep it. And yet, conversely, if we find any sort of fault with the one, if the one fails to be the one that we thought the one would be, we're crushed. We feel like we've missed it out and we'll never be restored. It's not hard to see that this isn't only a problem for hopeless romantics. You have a one. I have a one. The one could be a politician, could be a job, could be a house, could be an adventure, could be a kid. Whatever we think will make us feel whole will add purpose, belonging. Whatever we think will take us in our widowhood and redeem us to belonging. But the weight of this burden will either leave us disappointed or it will crush whomever we place that burden on. Nothing in this world is strong enough to live up to that level of belonging. But here is Jesus, the one we've been waiting for. He's big enough. He's big enough for all of your hopes. He was the one who was going to solve what was lost in Eden and bring us back to the completeness that we have been complicated with in our quest for sin. Jesus was the faithful husband who was not going to be scared away at the cost of redeeming his wife, but he was actually going to do it. In the book of Hosea, we see this live action metaphor where God goes to the prophet Hosea and he says, my people are faithless, Hosea. And he says, good, I'll tell them that. He says, no, I want you to do one better. I want you to go marry a prostitute as an example of my faithful love for an unfaithful person. And we read the pain of this and the agony of this. But in Jesus, the metaphor was lost. In Jesus, he came as God's faithful husband to wed by the blood of his cross his unfaithful wife to himself. Jesus was not going to selfishly take from his wife. He was not going to passively stand back. But instead, he was going to give up himself for her despite her sin And in so doing, he was going to cause the righteousness of Isaiah 62 to abound all the more. The beauty of that wife in all of her purity was going to be seen by his own blood. Because he was the faithful husband, he was going to pay the price of his unfaithful bride. Look at how Paul ties this together in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When you are at a wedding and you see a bride standing in white, that is a down payment on what you will look like one day before Jesus. Perfect, presented spotless, radiant. Your track record of unfaithfulness expunged by the blood of the cross. In this same way, Paul continues, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. What is the mystery? The mystery of marriage. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and to the church. Married or not, single or dating, marriage is about you. Jesus is the atonement for the adulterous heart that Ezekiel spoke of. Jesus' blood is the power which washes away our sin and presents us as finally and holy, pure to God himself. Jesus is the better Adam who crushed the head of the snake when Adam couldn't. And why does Jesus do this for you? Because he loves you. Because he loves you any more than any false husband or stand-in idol ever could. Because he knows your heart runs to those things which promise love but only bring death. But in his death, he promised to love you into life if you would see your true husband. Jesus restores everything we find so attractive about weddings and marriages because he restores us to himself, the true groom, God in human form the one who really can bring us purpose and identity because he restores us to God himself. You see, regardless of where you are on the relational spectrum, this marriage story involves you. And we see this in a couple ways in closing. This is marriage and the church. That's what marriage is all about. Marriage and the people of God. And the first way we see this, the first way we begin to apply us being restored to the person of God and the purpose of God in marriage, is that the church lives out its marriage with fidelity to the gospel. We are to be faithfully true to the gospel. Look at how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians verse 11 through three, or Second Corinthians 11:1 through3. "I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul's speaking here as a minister. I brought you, I brought you to the altar, I brought you to your husband. And how did he bring you to be married to Jesus? Through the gospel if you want the entire ecosystem of marriage, if you want the celebration of God, it has to come through Jesus. Do not be deceived by false gospels. Do not think you could get there by your own works. Do not think that God broadly loves everybody. It is exclusively through his husband in Jesus Christ. And I plead with you today, if you are not a believer, this is what you need. To repent and believe and give your life for this husband. I pray you would do that. The church must be faithful to the gospel. Secondly, we see that being wed to Jesus means that we now live for our forever joy. We're in one sense married, but in one sense we're not yet married. And this is a tension the Bible holds dear. Now, you remember, I told you to remember Jeremiah chapter 25 and how he spoke of uh, judgment as the removal of the wedding feast and how he spoke of redemption as the restoration of the wedding feast. Well, thousands of years later, the Apostle John is writing the book of Revelation. And we get a glimpse into final judgment. And Babylon, which is this uh, kind of corporate head of all that is wrong and evil and wicked in the world. Babylon is the deceiver. Babylon is what leads the saints astray. Finally, Babylon will be judged. And God speaks to Babylon. And look at how he describes its judgment. Remember when we looked in Jeremiah, we saw that the mill would be removed, the wedding would be removed, and the light would be removed. Look at Revelation 18, beginning in verse 21. Then an angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of the harpist, the musician, the flute players, and the trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were great ones on the earth. And all nations deceived by your sorcery. In the end, God will judge the wickedness. God will silence the snake which seeks to lead all God's people away. And what will that judgment look like? The permanent and forever removal of the wedding feast. The entire ecosystem of fellowship and belonging will forever be silenced at the day of judgment. For those who refuse to turn to Jesus, this is your end. Everything you so desperately run to this world for looking to find might clash, clang, and sing today. But one day that siren call will be ended in judgment. One day the judgment of the faithful husband whom you have left will be poured out on you. But for those who repent and for those who believe, who are saved by the blood of the husband who gave himself for you. Look at what comes next. Revelation 19, verse 6. Right after this, what do we see? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you hear the true words of God for you today? That everything you've looked for in the world is granted in full at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where finally you are robed with the righteousness of Jesus. Eve looks as he, she was always meant to look. And we feast and we celebrate and we are satisfied forever. And No one will silence it. The wine will never run dry. The food will never grow cold. And we will rejoice for we have been wed to our husband, Savior forever. Oh, to be at that table. And look at what this culminates in. Revelation continues. Verse, chapter 21, verses 9 through 10, says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away to this, in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The bride is getting her new Eden. And what does the new Eden look like? Skip down to verse, chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side, the river, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing for the nations. The garden is restored. The fruit is back. The blessing for the nations has been promised at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And what does the church do? Verse 16 and 17. Jesus says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires to take let the one who desires take the water of life without price the promise of final future joy lived out for the church manifest itself in the one mighty word come come you who are thirsty and drink of the water without price as we go about our week as the bride of christ We are committed to saying, come. Come to the faithful husband who redeems his wife for his own joy. And lastly, this is where we end today. We apply this joy with faithfulness and mission. Jesus says this in Matthew 28. Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the ends of the age because Christ has bound a church to himself because Christ is the greater Adam who crushed the head of the serpent and he has purified Eve as her savior he recommissions the church as the new Eve to go into the world to expand his kingdom not physically but spiritually to to give our lives for the glory of God, making spiritual disciples and new converts to our wonderful husband King. This is what we do. This is where we live out the wedding of Jesus. This is where the power of the gospel reveals the love of Christ for us. This is where Jesus makes sense of the desert places in your life where he gives you the task to work, to say, come, come to this Jesus. Where does this unique calling show up in your life, even in our unique circumstances today? Where is God asking you to celebrate this wedding and this marriage by partnering together with your forever husband as the church and working for the glory of God? Our unique call and our unique joy as the church is to bless the nations and our city by inviting them into this marriage and displaying the wonderful love of our husband, King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you rend our hearts faithful to you through the gospel. And that because of that, because of the promise of joy set before us, because we see how it ends and we see the wonderful, radiant work of our husband on our behalf, we beckon to the world to come. To come and see. That you make us faithful to Jesus and his work on the cross to save sinners and restore us to God. And Lord, that one day we will not be scattered as alcoves throughout a city. We will no longer sit as guests at a wedding table. But we will all gather as the bride at the table of this husband forever and ever and ever by the blood of his cross. We pray this in your name. Amen.